Born on the wrong side of the tracks in one of New York's less salubrious shacks, playing outside with a charm or two. Up on Sedgwick Avenue, made up a game, the jewel of sorts. Beats and rhymes and then retorts, words spread in months, so fast that it seemed that everyone was at it. It rather took off, and so it went. We all knew one of the five elements. Then a shiny suit thought, wait a minute, there just might be something in it. Packed it, sold it, let it rot, blamed it for society's lot. Now it's all hard to defend. The whole thing's gone quite rhymed the bend. So hip hop was to blame after all. Yes, it appears everything's entirely hip hop's fault. Hello and welcome along to the current State of Music podcast. My name is Chris Cracknell. I am a mix engineer. Audio engineer based out of my own studio, Goldtone Studio, here in Brighton in the UK. I also am a DJ. I have a show on 1BTN, broadcasting out of Brighton, and also sometimes produce and remix under the name Hollows. So that sort of qualifies where I'm coming from with this podcast, which is to sort of find out where the music business is, where music is for artists and industry people right now. And uh, I go into the reasons why I'm sort of keen to find out about this at the on episode one of season two with Mr. Thing. If you want to kind of dig into that a bit deeper, if you want to know a bit more about me, then and if you haven't listened already, then go back to that one. But this time around, this episode, which is actually in two parts, which is unusual, but on the day we sat down to do this, which was back in, I think it was May or June 2018, and it's taken a while to kind of come to light. And that's literally my fault because shortly after we did this, and it was a it was a long interview, and the thought of editing it down into something easier to kind of digest filled me with a certain amount of dread. And then we undertook a big project renovating my house, and so time became absolutely absolutely non-existent. And then when I came back to it, I then did edit it down. And then it sat for a bit while I was getting all the other interviews together. And then just recently I went back to it and I thought maybe I'll just give it the whole thing a listen again and see how it's sitting. And realised that actually it's a really interesting story ranging from... Kind of a kid at school, sort of starting to make music into becoming part of a band that have, for want of a better phrase, a one-hit wonder. And then dealing with the fallout of that and the realities of that. And then kind of moving forward with a career in music and then reinventing yourself and then sort of carving out a career which is a very individual thing and then sort of finding a level of success again and how you sort of motivate yourself and how you monetize that and how you sort of look forward as well like if it's your pension how you kind of deal with that so in the end it made a lot of sense just to cut the interview in half and present it in two parts um 
Mr. B does tell a very good story and he does have a lot of stories to tell, which is another reason why I didn't want to cut it down. I just felt he's he was such good company. The day he came over, I was just laughing and laughing at some of the stories he was coming out with. And he's a really engaging character and he's a lovely guy. And uh, I used, he used to follow me on 1BTM once a month and we'd have a little crossover and we'd have a little chat. And I just really like what he does. I like his kind of aesthetic and the way he presents things. And there's not always enough time in this world for sort of little bits of irreverence and sort of pithy. And he does it really well. And so that is why it's going to be in two parts, because I think the world deserves a little bit of Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. So please sit back, put some headphones on and uh, enjoy the next couple of hours. Please introduce yourself. My name is Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer, and I'm a chap hop superstar. What do you do? What do I do? I'm, yes. I do, well, what do I do? Often I say I'm, I'm reconnecting hip-hop and its ilk to uh, manners and the Queen's English. Well, not always manners, necessarily. Certainly the Queen's English. But, um, yes, I, I've reinvented hip-hop as if it had been uh, invented in the 1930s by, say, Noel Coward and George Formby. I sometimes say, if, say, Chuck D, Prince Paul... Noel Coward and George Formby got drunk in a bar and decided to start a band. This is the sound they would make, fundamentally. So let's go back. <clears throat> let's go back in time. When? What are your first kind of recollections of music? When? When did something kind of prick your ear and you thought, ah, this is music? I remember my well. My parents had, of course, they, you know, they were of an age when they had a few Elvis albums and some Beatles albums. I think they had Beatles albums up until about... I think Rubber Soul was probably the first album I really kind of got into when I was really young. They could, I think they had it up to Rubber Soul, but then after my sister was born and my sister um, developed learning disability and things like that, so I think it's rather sort of sad looking at their record collections. They were collecting loads of music, then it got to 1966, and it just kind of stopped until, I don't know, well, probably until we started collecting music, really. They had other things on their minds really the music but um, I remember that and hearing a few things on the radio what was I listening to the other day was it, was it um, Hold Your Head High by Arjon which was something like from about 1974 or something like that 73 and I remember that I remember something being in infant school and kind of somehow having that in my head maybe I'd heard it on the radio or something and there was these odd little tunes from that era that you remember yeah but didn't really connect with it all the time and then suddenly now even you know wherever 40 years ago or so 40 years or so later you're suddenly going oh, I remember that and you you know listening back to it I mean I'm not that bothered about the chorus of that one but I think the verses of that tune are absolutely brilliant but uh, yes that's my memory of it playing on the old little um, what would you call it little record player with a lid that you a danzette exactly a little danzette sort of thing but I remember yeah, also connected with music in a way that they had all the music in a shelf or a couple of shelves above right. this little Dunset thing. And I remember lifting up the lid, looking up, and uh, Elvis Golden Greats falling out, <laughs> the vinyl falling out. 
whacking me straight in the forehead and I had this huge lump on my head which had a little valley in the middle of it where the vinyl hit me. So that was my first real connection with vinyl, was it smacking me in the head. Yes, I had this big bruisey bump on my head for ages afterwards. So yeah, that's how it started. And uh, so when, sort of, so as you were getting older, was there a point where kind of it hooked you more than maybe sort of other kids in at school or that you were hanging out with? I think so. Well, I always remember when, when I was at, lots of photos I have of me as a small child, I remember every Christmas and birthday I would get, an, I would want a musical instrument. Right. Even though I just, you know, I had endless guitars that would break after about three days or ukuleles and things like that. That I would just strum. They must have driven them all mad. Didn't you know? I didn't know what the fretboard was for. Just that was just to hold it. Yeah. And I'd sit there strumming all those, you know, pictures of me with mouth organs and and xylophones and things like that, or you know, little ones. But I think I always, obviously, always had a connection with music somehow. But I remember we always think of the first record you bought. Yeah. I mean, and I can't remember which one was first. But I've, I've, I'm worried that I sound a bit sort of, you know, a bit showy offy. But I remember it was either whichever one of, them, of these three came out first, out of Start by the Jam, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson, or what was the other one? Uh, Cars by Gary Newman. Right. It was one of those three. I can't remember which one it was. But then I decided I became a Newmanoid when I was about nine. Oh, yeah. But yeah, not fully. I just bought an album. I had an, had an album and two singles, and I think, as far as I was concerned, when I was that old, yeah. that made me a fan. Yeah. And I listened to The Pleasure Principle over and over again. I just love that album. I think it's brilliant. Then something weird happened, and I decided that I... <laughs> to my, I decided I liked Shaking Stevens. Yeah, but everyone liked Shaking Stevens. I guess everyone that did. Time, That's, he was at number one, yes. Yeah. And that... Be, that turned me on to a load of other stuff this was when I was maybe 11 and then I became a rockabilly so then I suddenly heard like the stray cats and the pole cats and I had a friend at school whose older brother brother was about three years older than us and he was a full on you know big 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 quiffed rockabilly and he played me loads of stuff so I was listening to all this you know rockabilly and psychabilly and then I got into King Kurt and things like that I was too young to go to any of the gigs sadly always really wanted to go and see King Kurt well, I did see Stray Cats when I was about 14, I think, something like that. Yeah. But, um, and then gradually after that, sort of discovered hip-hop and pop as well, I think. I sort of discovered things like The Art of Noise and then some sort of early hip-hop and then sort of shifted from there. But it was a tricky, it was a tricky transition because everything was very tribal then. If you were a rockabilly and then suddenly... Yeah. You'd either cajoled your friends into being rockabillies, as I sort of did... Or you'd sort of met some people that were into it. That was what you were. Whereas now you can kind of be into everything. There's not really that tribal. Yeah, those sort of youth tribes as yeah. they were back yeah, in yeah, the yeah. late '70s and early '80s. Whereas now you can just try hand at anything. Yeah, you can Whereas, be everything at any time. Can't you? Yeah, exactly. Whereas then it was like, okay, you're a rockabilly. That's what you listen to. I mean, my friend's older brother who was a rockabilly. He liked loads of different stuff, but he would only buy Elvis records. And that was it. He could have refused to buy anything else. Which was a bit, okay, that's fine. And, you know, he's the king. But, yes. It was just, there are other things. So, so kind of, if you moved out of that phase, like, I guess, did you go to university and how did that 
what did that do? Oh yeah, so when that, you know, when I was at school, I was at a grammar school, and it was very, it was all just footy and sport and things like that. Was it musical? Did you not, not take in any no. musical instruments at school? I don't remember. I think I remember. I vaguely remember one music lesson and not really doing anything in it. Yeah, but all the time I was at home, and I, you know, after being a very small child, after that, I remember when I was. About 10, I got a guitar. Then I was at 11, I got one of the Casio VL tone, the VL1. Yes. And that was, in a way, that was a real revelation. Even though it just went... <laughs> it was something like... It was just... And it was a beautiful-looking thing. And this is mm. one of the things as well that... I'd recently, you know, a while back, I bought the Teenage Engineering OP1 yes. synthesizer. And it looks like the yeah, yeah. VL tone, but it does everything. And it's incredible. And I just love those... You know, there's little toys that just look brilliant and you just yeah. you know, you just want to play with them all the time. I had a little rule when I got that that I had to play it every day. Right. Even if it was just switching it on and going... Beep, 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 I kind of had this little rule that I'd do that. And then I think I got a little tape-to-tape recorder and, you know, little, um, you know boombox thing. So was this all self-motivated or were your parents yeah, kind of interested in you sort of No, they weren't, they weren't remotely musical at all. It was a re- I'm, I was a weird <laughs> freak of nature that nobody in my family was really... You know, they liked music, but they never played it particularly. My brother used to hang out with a lot of my mates. He was two years younger than me. He used to hang out with my mates and they'd go up to London and things like that. Or people in my year. Right. Because he was a bit of a, you know, he was a bit more cool and a bit of a sort of casual and things like that. And more Sergio Toshini and that sort of thing. And I would just sit in my room just making music all the time. So were any of, like, were you in a circle of friends that were kind of into the same sort of thing? Or were you just literally on your own? It was, it was pretty much just me. I mean, it's not that I was without friends. Yeah. I had a circle of friends. And we would... There's uh, my, uh, my friend Eggy from school. I remember getting in terrible trouble with my mum because we would sit at the back of the class and just write songs about the teachers. And they weren't complimentary songs by any stretch of the imagination. And they were the sort of songs that you'd write if you thought that no one else would listen to them. And then suddenly I think my brother just grasped me up. And I remember this moment of my mum coming downstairs, holding this exercise book and just handed it to me. And my brother, like, peering out from behind her, just going, hee just laughing. And it was all this really terrible, you know, something about one of the teachers who was something about when they're sitting up the front and you know then you know you do a rhyming couplet with that and it's just your mum's not going to like it very much <laughs> which is a shame yes thing is I hope she doesn't listen she will listen to this sadly because she does sort of pay attention to things so I w- probably she would have re- forgotten this by now but uh, yes oh well I would like, if, if she is if you are listening mum that was uh, Eggy's idea that particular line <laughs> so Okay, so did you yes. go to university? Like, how, did then, then to, what happened? Yes, I'll, so the whole thing was at school, I was, it was something I had to do on my own because nobody else was interested. And you just, I just thought I was a bit of a weirdo and things like that. Then suddenly I went to Epsom Art College and did a sort of BTEC there. And after a couple of months, I think I was, because I'd got tapes and tapes and tapes of this stuff I'd been recording. And then I was talking to someone there about music and they said and I'd mentioned that I'd got all this music that I'd written and they said oh, I should bring it in and I thought oh god no because it was all nobody ever heard it. it was just for my own yeah. entertainment it was you know 
I was just sort of crushingly embarrassed about the whole thing. Actually, to the point when this is really ridiculous. To the point when I'd actually writing lyrics. I was hated writing lyrics. I was really embarrassed about whatever it was I was on about. So this is just so weird. I kind of invented my own alphabet of symbols that I would write them in so that nobody else knew. It was like code. It was like an enigma code. So that nobody else knew what the lyrics were apart from me. And I had to kind of go through each one. So that's an E. The triangle is an E. The round thing is a T. And that's slightly ridiculous. But that was through me and another friend at school studying class and we came up with an... It was called Menzoblian. The language. Menzoblian. But that came from... It was really from me and a friend at school just mucking about. We came up with this whole island called Menzoblia. And we did the top trumps of the people that lived there. <laughs> <laughs> think, you, see, you see where this comes from now? This is like a therapy session I'm working out. Where what on earth yeah, this has all come from. So, uh, yes, we did that. But we also decided to make a language. And this language which we made, which was a written language, was what I wrote a lot of my lyrics in. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. wow. Pretty weird. Yeah, I don't where do we go from here? I don't know where to go now. Maybe I'll uh, just... Uh, I'll leave you with that. Then. It's your next album sorted. <laughs> Do a concept album <laughs> based around that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it will be good. Mr. B's Adventures in Menzoblia. <laughs> so, yes, college. College. Exactly. Suddenly I went to college and everything seemed to slightly fall more into place. You know, I brought these tapes and someone listened to it and said, oh, it's quite good. He did say it sounded like Stump, which wasn't my intention. Right. But if you know Stump, no. Stump were a Irish, um, kind of weird, quirky, pseudo-funk band, right. but everything they did was sort of very discordant, really discordant, to the point that it was, you know, just very silly and didn't really make much sense musically, but obviously, it was obviously, they'd worked it out, it wasn't just, you know, a, a mess. Yeah. They'd actually worked out that okay, this we're going to play this bass line that goes bew, 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 along with a kind of guitar that's all discordant and yeah. So you know, it was probably you know, slightly sort of indie jazz in a way, but yeah, somebody said it sounded like Stump, which was great because I did love Stump, but it wasn't supposed to sound like Stump. It was supposed to sound quite good, so that was slightly insulting. But um, yes, and then I met a group of people who used to. Uh, all these kind of hippies that, that one of them used to well it's actually Haytham who went on to form Censor who, oh, right. yeah and they his mum was quite cool with everyone coming round on a Friday night and we used to have a big to set instruments up and have a big jam and at that time I was really into playing the bass in a slightly 80s slappy way in a Mark King way yes very much in a Mark King way that's why I was thinking, you know, level 42 is one of my guilty stroke, not guilty pleasures. Yes. And as much as I learnt to play the bass, I think I listened to, was it, I used to have on Capital Radio thing, these things called Rock Masterclass. Right. And they would get people in, they had a Trevor Horn on talking about production, yeah. and I just happened to listen, I think it was listening to the end of the, the network chart show. Yeah. And then after that, there was Rock Masterclass, and they had Mark King on, he was talking about how you played, you know, his uh, his style of bass playing. And as it turned out, it was a lot simpler than it sounded. So right. I was thinking, like, okay, this is the first time I could actually impress people by going, tick 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 and that sort of thing. Uh, so, yes, I could have learned to play the bass like that. 
and once I got to uh, yeah college age and and uh, yeah went round to these friends' house and had a jam and they all thought I was really great because I could do that version but you know just don't mention Mark P- Mark King. <laughs> so was there any was there like you know like a joining a band or any did anything happen like that? Yeah, we started. I did some stuff with. Hayton from Sensor. I think he recorded his first rap in my on my little four track in my right. parents' loft. When I was eighteen, I managed to persuade the parents to not exactly legally, but they they converted the loft and I moved up there because I shared a bedroom with my brother till I was eighteen, which was fun. But then I found that as soon as I moved upstairs, you know, we became very good friends. Whereas before, we kind of just hated each other. It could just because you were in that close vicinity yeah. the whole time. I think that's fine. Yeah, but. So, yeah, I did a little band with them, but then I started another band with uh, a friend of mine's brother, and we were called Skank Thing, and we, it was kind of slightly big audio dynamite, you know, sort of sampled, but, in you know, a bit indie and a bit punk, but, you know, we I didn't have a drummer, I had, like, my little boss DR330, whatever it was, drum machine. And we had a DJ, that sort of stuff. You know, it was 1990, end of 89 we started the band. Right. So, you know, and we were very, I think we were originally called Dave LaSalle and the Russian Bike Gang. So I think that kind of gave a vague idea of the sound. But then we changed it to Skank Thing. And we were sort of a band, I think, you know, we could have, if we knew what we were doing, we could have been quite successful. Yeah. We did end up on the world. We had a manager for a short while, but we were really... We were really belligerent and wouldn't let anyone in our own little circle. So we had a guy who sort of tried to manage us for a bit. But we felt like he didn't quite get us. And that was the important thing. He had to get what we were on about and that sort of thing. Do you think that's just um, like a youth... Probably, yes. ...kind of attitude? Possibly. I think there may have been... Yeah, I guess there was a bit of fear in the band. A couple of people in it were a few years older than me, and they kind of had jobs. And I think there was a slight fear of, what if it is successful? Do I have to leave my job? What do I do? And one of them had kids. And just, I think there was a certain amount of fear there of taking that leap. Um, But we ended up, we did, we had this manager, and we ended up doing a gig at The Zap in Brighton and then we kind of fell out with him because we parked our cars outside and they got towed away and it cost us 300 quid which for someone who's a student at the time is just ludicrously expensive Yeah. and we just thought it all went horribly wrong and we fell out with him and didn't didn't speak to him for about a year then I got a phone call when I moved to Maidstone Art College saying that this manager had got us and we were going to go on the word Right. He'd been hoiking our demo tape around yeah, still, yeah. and we were going to go on the word. And I immediately thought, yeah, well, this is, you know, this is nonsense. This isn't going to happen. And then he said, apparently, oh, yeah, they're going to send a, you know, a scout along, what have you, to your rehearsal the next day. So we did this rehearsal, and this guy turned up, and we were playing. The track we were playing actually had a basis in a like a looped sample which we had on vinyl. But it was from our old DJ and he had an older pair of decks that you could the pitch control on it was went much wider than a 1210 yeah and so we, we tr- tried to play it and it just sounded appalling because the DJ couldn't get it up to the right speed for the track and the right yeah. pitch 
and we thought, well, this isn't going to work. And the guy said, sort it out by next Thursday and we'll see you there. Yeah, right. So like, right, okay, this is happening. So we ended up sort of getting a backing track together and sort of demoing that. And yeah, we end up on the word or the word access all areas, as it's called. It was like their Thursday thing they used to do, which was a kind of roundup of the previous week's things. And they had like a demo band slot, you know, an unsigned band spot. So we sort of played in there. It, it is on YouTube and it's quite new. We were interviewed by Mark Lamar and had to bring in various things either from our childhood or just to show who we were, you know, what sort of people we were, as people, nobody knew who we were. I brought in a brick from my junior school, which was being demolished at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a brick from my junior school. We went and raided the school the night before. So, yeah, that was fun. But then we could have thought, so that's it then. We're pop stars now. Yeah, big jumper. Yeah, so... Could have been. Yeah, could have been. But then we just didn't... We didn't know what to do then. And also, because we'd fallen out with the manager, we didn't fall back in with him. Yeah. Even though he'd gone as this... Which is, you know, something I regret and I feel rather sorry for. But we didn't really thank him for it or anything like that. We were just little gits, really. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so we still never really, you know, nothing really happened after that. But was there a point then that, or, or did that lead you to think that, right, I could make a life in music, or do you just kind of, it was just one of those things that kind of happened that, like, this is life happening to me? Yeah, well, I always, I mean, I wanted to make, you know, make music and make a living out of making music. Yeah. I was never quite sure how, but I got, you know, I got a degree in graphic design because I thought, well, that's a job, you know, that's yeah. something that which is tangible you can actually do because a career in music just seems slightly ridiculous and it's for these people who are pop stars to do. Yeah. These kind of weird, mythical creatures that, you know, we don't really know what they are. But, well, after that, I mean, we did, after the word, obviously, I think there was a certain, it was a palpable sense that Okay, if nothing's happening after this, maybe nothing's going to happen at all. But then I was at Haytham from Censor's Place and we were reading the NME because it was something that people used to do. People used to read the NME. And I'd been to see Collapse Lung a couple of times supporting Censor and I thought they were really great. And we were reading in the NME that Nihal had left, the rapper had left Censor and I just said to Haytham, oh, I could do that. As a joke, really. And he just said, oh, you could. You could definitely do that. And he gave me Anthony's number from Collapse Lung. And I phoned him up. And it was funny because I live in that... I had done a song called SW21. Because I lived in Cheam, it was that slightly weird sort of schizophrenic area of South London. Because it had it was a London borough and had a London phone number. But it had a Surrey postcode. Ah, so it was like both London... Yeah, so exactly both the same, London yeah. and Surrey. Yeah. Where was it you were? In Kent. I had, I had a Dartford postcode and a right. Dartford phone number, but I was in, living in a London bar. Yeah. Bexley. Yeah. So it was nothing. It was and sort of, of, yeah, that cancelled, no man's land. cancelled each other out. Yeah, exactly. So I actually, because, you know, London ended with SW20. Yeah. So I said, well, if we were, had a postcode, it would be SW21. Yeah. So I just invaded this place called SW, and a little tune called SW21 about how you're just kind of in the middle of nowhere and you don't really know where you're going, which is fair enough for suburbia and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and he actually sent uh, so he sent the tape down for me to do some stuff on and he sent it to you know whatever the address was SW21 <laughs> and it got there so he could have well could well have failed miserably because they'd have gone well this is there is no such address yeah you never got that yes I thought I was you know he knew that I was just joking about SW21 but that's where he sent it but um, so I just put a few rhymes you know dropped a few bars on it and what have you and then yeah we spent a weekend in Harlow where they were based and spent a weekend demoing stuff I said I think at the end of that Steve from the band just gave me a collapsed lung t-shirt and said I think that means you're in the band right so I said okay I think I'm in the band but that was the point when I suddenly went probably almost went too far and I was thinking okay well I'll move to Harlow nobody wants to move to Harlow it's not somewhere you want to move to but I was like okay if I have to I'll move to Harlow because they were already signed and I had a couple of EPs out and you know they were doing pretty well I thought, okay, I'm suddenly, I'm in a signed band, which okay. then was very important. Yeah, so what was the landscape like then, you know, kind of, what was it like being in a band then? Like, what what was your sort of day-to-day, like, or what was like a week-to-week like, you know, what were you doing? Well, this was, this was the thing. I ended up getting quite depressed because, you know, to all intents and purposes, I had achieved my dreams. I was in a band that had got a record deal, we started going on tour and that was brilliant fun although even though you know, the other guys in the band had been doing it for a year or so and were already quite jaded right so I was like, when we first did the first couple of gigs I would come off stage really hyped up thinking wow that was amazing we did you know, a gig in front of a like, thousand people or something like that at a festival and they'd already be slightly picking things apart and going yeah it was it was okay you know, but we should probably change this and probably change that. And I didn't like this about it. Right. Well, I always thought we were all going to be in a big huddle, sort of, you know, chanting. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just chanting and, you know, just being very pleased about the whole thing. Yeah. But, and then I realised, because I decided, okay, I left the other band. And I didn't really do a lot of my own stuff then because I just thought, right, I have to just concentrate on this band. Yeah. And you realise that being in a band like that, especially that time, you were... And at that level, I didn't have any money. I was still on the dole for about a year and a half when I was in the band because I was making no money out of it at all. Yeah. And even now, I have no idea how much we got paid for any of the gigs. I was obviously doing my own thing now. I always, you know, I'm, I am, I negotiate the fee and things yeah. like that. Whereas then, it was there was you know record there was a record label, the agent, the publishers, all that sort of thing, and. I had no idea who had money or what we were getting paid for anything. Largely also because I was conscious that I'd joined the band. It wasn't yeah. a band I'd started. Yeah. It was a band I'd joined. So I didn't want to suddenly, you know, I didn't want to suddenly overstamp myself on it. But I wanted to make it my thing. Did you feel like you had some ownership of it? Or of your part of it? Yeah, certainly of my part of it, yeah. That was, I was bringing... But it was a thing that really I was more into making music than being a front man and writing lyrics and that sort of thing. And I'd suddenly, yeah, that was my job all of a sudden. So I was, there was, and with, you know, if you're doing hip hop, there's a lot of words you have to write. So it's, you know, I mean, the first album, I actually end up, you know, typing out all the lyrics of the first, I mean, it's something like 7,000 words, you know, because you just, yeah, you just, 
it's it's a lot of words. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, and then I suddenly realised that I was I, I realised I was watching Neighbours twice a day, and and because <laughs> when it was on at lunchtime and then they repeated at like half five, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just sitting at my parents' <laughs> house waiting for a call to either go on the road or go into the studio or maybe do a bit of radio or the occasional bit of TV. Yeah. But 90% of the time, I was just sat at my parents' house do, twiddling my thumbs. Right. Because I'd sort of psychologically decided this is what I was going to do. I was in this band, so I had to concentrate on that and, and clear the schedules and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, yeah it, I just became very depressed for about... Yeah, for most of the first year I was in collapsed lung, I was in a huge pit of despair. Well, that's which quite was interesting. Odd. Yeah, whereas you know, and in that very peculiar, you know, way that a lot of entertainer types think that you know the only time they're really happy is when they're on stage. Yeah, there was a bit like that. That was the point when I was in control. I think what it was, I felt like I'd realised I'd handed my whole life over to some other people. And it was their decision about what I was going yeah. to do. And that's really, especially for someone that's always invented their own little things. Yeah. It was a really weird state of affairs. And suddenly, yeah, it was very peculiar. But that was for a, a year or so. But then after that, you, you know, it wasn't actually, it was about a really terrible flu that got me over it in a way. And we were travelling to Europe. And I think I'd, I sort of said to my mum, I said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I can't go. It's just, you know, it's too much. It's doing my head in. And I thought she was going to be all very mumsy about it and go, OK, then. <laughs> OK, little Jimmy, you stay at home. But she said, she said, no, you've got to do it. You do this tour. And, and, but then think, when it's done, I'll stop. Yeah. And I thought, that's a bit harsh. I was expecting you to, yeah, you know, yeah. tell me everything was going to be yeah, all right and you don't yeah, have yeah. to do it. But no, she said, no, just do it and then stop afterwards. And then we started doing the tour and I got really terrible about the flu. And we, when we were travelling, I think I had to be at Heathrow Airport and travel to Switzerland first thing in the morning. I had a temperature of 104 or something. And it was just... And I think in that way, I just had to concentrate on trying not... You know, just trying to hold it together physically. Yeah. <clears throat> and I got tonsillitis as well. And we went and did a show in France. It's amazing what you can do, what you can go through to just get up on the stage and do it and then be ill. I ended up on a drip for three days. And after that, I I think it was that thing, thinking, I can get out of this if I want. But then, as soon as I thought that, it just suddenly became a huge amount of fun again. Right. And, yeah, it was just, you were just enjoying going out. And now I realised, you know, you didn't have to totally concentrate on this. You could do other stuff as well. So you realised that you did actually have some control yeah, absolutely. amongst it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it was, interesting. Yeah. God, so this then, is a total therapy session, this. I don't know what... <laughs> this is going to be an odd one. That's perfect. Um, so, to be fair, most people listening to this, if they're probably over the age of 30, 35... Yes. ...will know collapsed lung for Eat My Goal. Yes, exactly, yes. Tell me about that. He, my goal. It was massive, right? It was kind of... Well, it was. It became top 20. I think that was the second time round. I think it got to about number 31 or something like that. But it was all over the telly because it was... Isn't there a World Cup? Yeah, it was the Euro 96 right. in England. And 
I turned up. We had a little studio in sort of Farringdon, Clerkenwell, nice. way, called The Cooler, which is what we named our second album after. And I just remember turning up there one day and Johnny, our bass player, just saying, do you want to do the music for the next Coca-Cola advert? And, you know, in principle, I would say no, but we were skinned. So yeah. I said, okay, yes. yeah, why not? So, yeah, so suddenly this whole thing happened. I mean, the track had already been on the first album in a slightly different form. Right, okay. And I think the people that were doing the advert just found... And they found our first album called Jackpot Goalie in a record shop in Holland or something. Right. And it had like little Subutio goalkeepers on the front of it. And they thought, oh, it's a football thing. Let's have a listen to that. And they found Eat My Goal and, yeah, decided they wanted to use it for this advert. And then it just became synonymous with lots of football things, even though it's not a song about football at all. Right. Yeah, the goal in question is more of a, you know, ambition or otherwise. Yeah. But... And obviously it was it, it was nicked off Alan Partridge. It's an Alan, you know, Alan Partridge quote from the day to day. Yeah. And so, yeah, suddenly we became very popular with the, you know, mother label of our little indie label. We were on Deceptive Records and they were part of London Records. Yeah. And suddenly we were being invited along to, you know, we went to the League Cup final and, you know, there was lots of... We suddenly became pop stars for about four or five months yeah and you know we'd start playing gigs that would yeah I had a lot of people there and often though we you know we realised it's slightly tipped over into nobody really knew who we are but everyone knew what the what the track was yeah and then we released another track after that and spent some money on a video and it sold absolutely nothing Right. Sort of less than our little uh, EPs that we put out before, and then you, you suddenly realise you're a kind of one-hit wonder. Because I think you have to, if you, the bands that do well are the ones that follow it up with something. Yeah. But I think you know, I don't know how you know. We spent some money on the video, but it didn't. I think there was like a sort of eighth of a page advert in the NME for it, or something like that, for the next single. Right. And they, I don't know what was going on with the label, but they clearly didn't. They decided not to really get behind it. I think they. I think uh, I think most of the money we made probably went. We were on the same label as Elastica, and I think it really went into their bloodstream. I don't know, but that's another story. So, how does it feel then to kind of go from getting, you know, like you've achieved your dream of being in a band, and realise that maybe that's not as brilliant as you might ever hope for but then then find the fun in it then have this craziness around a song that goes ballistic and then find that you know right we can jump on this and then you jump on it and the next song doesn't do very well how do you deal with that like how what what goes on in your mind like how do you stay motivated what's that about yeah it's an interesting thing when that happens when you become a a sort of one hit wonder even a one minor hit if if it was a sort of hit that made us tons and tons of money that would have been fine but it was a kind of minor hit and also at that time in the mid 90s record labels were still spending a lot of money yeah and recording was expensive and by the time that came out, between, even though we were a really small indie band, between the record label and publishers, 
and everything like that, we were probably about a quarter of a million pounds in the hole. Wow. Just from like two albums worth of expenditure on on recording and publishing deals and things like that. Um, We were way down, so we, we, all the money was eaten up by that. So, you know, a year after it happened, I was phoning up my, I had to phone up my accountant to ask if I was in a position where I could sign on the dole, because I was completely skinned. Yeah. So that slightly rubbed salt into the wounds of the whole thing. But, you know, I just, you know, we were fairly philosophical about it. In a way, we didn't really want... I think there was a certain amount of success phobia there that we didn't necessarily want to be eaten up by the mainstream. But did you have any control over how that money is spent, or or does it like the mechanic, like the machine kicks in and and that's just what it does, or or do you have much saying like actually no, we're not going to spend x amount on a video or we're not going to spend that or we're not going to do that or is it just literally everything takes over no i think well the label we were on to their credit would would give us quite you know artistic freedom they never interfered they never interfered with the music we'd sometimes have arguments about who we wanted to do videos i mean uh the eat my goal video we did was not necessarily the video we wanted to make we you know we wanted it to be a bit it was quite sort of black and white and quite stark had some kids playing football in a multi-story car park whereas we kind of wanted the whole with a big you know dot matrix board and cheerleaders and just it to be a bit more celebratory yeah but you know we obviously lost out on that one but and as i say that at the time i was still pretty much thinking you know i'm the rapper in this band that i've joined and i tended to stay away from anything as far as yeah, where money was going or anything like that. I right. was just concentrating on, okay, I just get up there and I go in the studio and I write my rhymes and I get up on stage and I, you know, perform. Yeah. So I didn't really pay much heed to what was happening. I did manage to, weirdly, actually in the point when I was really in a, in a bit of a hole, we were due to play on the main stage at Reading. But I'd become quite belligerent that it was a friend of mine was getting married, a really close friend, on the day we were supposed to play at Reading. So I refused to play Reading and said, no, I'm going to my friend's wedding. Because I'd really become sort of slightly like, no, my friends are important. And they're, you know, yeah. my old friends. I need to. I felt I needed to keep that connection with them. Yeah. But it was quite nice to be in the, um, in the record label office while the guy that ran the label was begging... Um, what was it Neil Pengelly? I think it was. He used to run a lot, put the bands on at um, at Reading, kind of begging him to move us to the Sunday. That was kind of amusing to watch. You go, please, please, I'll do anything, please. And yeah, so in the end, I went to the wedding, and we managed to play on the Sunday at Reading. I'm glad we did, obviously, because it's you know, I think I was being a bit of an idiot, really. But no, I wanted to go to my friend's wedding. Yeah, That's I what I wanted to fair. do. But um, yeah, that was fun. So as far as the, the general mechanisms of things, I was just going along for the ride like I was in some sort of Magnus Mills book or something like that. Just like an innocent bystander yeah. floating around there. But So then what happened? So, yeah, well, then what happened after that? Well, like? after that, um, Steve, the guitarist in the band, had got a bit ill. I think he'd got some, you know, problem with his digestive system and he'd really been suffering and we had to, for the last couple of few months we had sort of replacement guitarists in and actually I think the last tour we did it ended up all going 
slightly horribly wrong. I think we were at Dundee University and the dressing room they had us in. There's, there's some video footage of this and it's just a band that had pretty much reached the end of their tether, but were just still... Yeah, it was the end of a tour and you start to get this kind of mania on tour when things, reality slightly disappears into the distance yeah. and everything goes slightly feral. And they put us in the dressing room with all the... I think it had all like the cleaning ladies' lockers and things like that. So we we made little bets or, you know, decided that you know, the drummer had just put on a, a full cleaning ladies' outfit to play the drums and the guitarist had to... We'd said he had to play two tunes with uh, rubber gloves on. I had to do... Well, mine was just I had to play one song with my trousers down. So, OK, all right, I'll do that. Um, and then it all... Everything just got a bit weird and it ended up with... Uh, I think it was yeah, our, our sound man uh, trying to kill our guitarist at the time. Uh, it just went really horribly wrong. And we, I think we ended up bundling our sound man into a wardrobe in a hotel. And while we were sort of taking the guitarist off, he was bleeding from the head because uh, he'd been attacked with a bottle of Tia Maria. <laughs> Which, you know, sometimes happens, sometimes, hey, if you go on tour, sometimes you're going to be attacked with a bottle of Tia Maria. Um, so, yeah, we just were <laughs> holding the door shut of our sound man. He was going, I'm going to kill him! I'm going to kill him! Yeah, so I remember myself and Johnny, the bass player, decided to fly back from Dundee and everyone else got in. Luckily, we had two separate vehicles. We had a techie van and just a little car to drive whoever wished to go in the car. So we were able to separate them. And I remember sitting on the Firth of Tail um, with Johnny, the bass player, and we basically said, I think that's probably the last gig we're ever going to do, isn't it? <laughs> there, was a certain, there was a little sense that I think this is done now. I think we're, I think we're finished. But the three of us started another band called Junior Blanks. We started kind of demoing some new collapsed lung material, but it right. became we started demoing things that just didn't really sound like collapsed lung anymore. They were a bit more. I think what we wanted our, our little thing with Junior Blanks. We wanted to. We had a little manifesto which was why we were wanted to be breakbeat ELO some reason I don't well, know why. why not? so I think there were more I was getting quite into vocal harmonies and things like that so we were, I was doing yeah all the choruses had little three part vocal harmonies yeah um, we never really achieved anything sounding like breakbeat ELO at all but it was a theory that we tried to carry through we did two albums worth and John Peel played uh, a couple of the tracks on his show which was really good but it just we did a few gigs but it just never really went anywhere. I think we had a manager at the time who'd moved to LA and he was almost trying to get us to put everything on hold over here because he wanted us to go out to LA right. and do the band there. And it just never happened. Did that not seem like a nice idea? Um, y- yes and no. It seemed like a nice idea, but I was I was always a bit of a home a homeboy, really, and that sort of thing. So I, right. I tended to... Um, I was a bit just yeah I wasn't sure if I wanted to go and suddenly start a new life in LA now it sounds like a great idea (laughs) well yes so we did that and then that slightly fizzled out and then I started doing stuff under the name of Sergeant Rock which was sort of breakbeat quirky breakbeat disco 
stuff. And it was around the time, you know, when Fatboy Slim was happening and the whole big beat thing was yeah. happening. Yeah. And I ended up... I, I, the first thing I did with Sergeant Rock was I remixed the first two Billy Piper singles. Wow, strong. <laughs> so, yeah. So I actually kind of had, well, a track on two number one singles, which was weird. Yeah. Um... So they were official official releases. Yeah, yeah, they're on. You if got you, paid for, etc. Yes, et yeah. I wish I'd got points on it rather than just get taking a remix fee. Yeah, but even that time the remix fee was half decent. But if I'd taken points on the single, it would have been quids in. Yeah. But there you go. I wasn't savvy enough to try and do that. And also, it was one of those things that they someone had said, "Oh yeah, no, this, this, she's going to be really big. She's like the British Britney Spears." Yeah. And you always think, well, yeah, but yeah, is she? Yeah. Whereas, as it turned out, for the first two singles, she was, really. But were you, um, you know, through sort of the end of Collapse Zone, were you making money off touring, you were earning a living doing that? The living we were making was from kind of retainer from the publishing company. Right. So we were signed uh, to Chrysalis, and they would, you know, give us a certain amount of money every month, and that was it basically yeah which was maybe like 400 quid something like that nice. well i guess you know in the mid 90s you could probably live on 400 quid a month yeah well i managed to i was you know i moved to tooting and still you know had that there and then when the remix work started coming to come in a little bit then there, that was a little bit extra and then i started djing with the sergeant rock stuff right and then got signed to a label with that yeah um on the on the basis of just giving him a debt, I gave a friend Gary Walker that used to run Ouija Records. He, I gave him a CD and he said, "Oh, come in." It was mainly from for some advice. Yeah. So, who do you think I should send this to? And he said, "Oh, come in and we'll have a chat about it." And he took me for lunch and said, well, "I'll sign you." So I thought, "Okay, fine." And it was again, it was quite nice. There wasn't much money in it. I didn't get a big advance. I got a little advance, but I had complete freedom to just give him the tracks and put yeah. the album out. And the album did nothing at all. It must have... I don't even know if it made triple figures as far as sales went. It sold nothing. <laughs> it would have been like, you know, maybe in the dozens. Yeah. But it was plundered for ads and TV and films right. and things like that. And so for a while, I was sort of just making a living. This was almost a dream. I was making a living from just answering the phone and saying yes to a few things yeah people were saying yeah, do you want to use it there was it was using like an impulse body spray ad and a, you know it was ads it was just that time and it was still not quite right to do ads it's never really right to do ads but if you're skinny what are you going to do it was either that or try and get a job which I did actually as well for a bit what job did you get I worked luckily it was only part time and, and fairly casual but I worked at a V&A museum oh. doing uh, the sort of audio-visual stuff for lectures. Right. Which was really nice. It was a really, really nice job because they just give me a list of things that were happening and I just go, oh, that looks good. I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah. And then you just sit in your little booth, try and get everyone else to do, you know, the people that were doing the talks or what have you to do everything themselves. Yeah. And with the people that work there, I hope they don't still work there because they may get in trouble, but they, they were basically saying to me, just be as obstructive as possible. <laughs> When people say, can you change the slides for me? Just say, no, you just press that button. Because it was very simple. They just had to press a button and the slides would move. But they said, if they want you to do it, say no. But I think it was for the good of the lectures because if somebody's, you know, doing a lecture and every 10 seconds has to go, can we have the next slide, please? Yeah. 
it becomes a bit yeah, rubbish. But we had, I think Johnny Vegas did a sh- uh, show in the lecture theatre because he's a potter. So I think well, they vaguely... Who knew that? What was that? Who knew that? Yeah, so he, well, <laughs> he studied pottery at university. And so he was, he did a show there and that was brilliant. That was hilarious because he almost did that slightly Ken Dodd thing of just massively overrunning. I think it was supposed to finish at half nine. And by, you know, half ten, he was still there. And because it's a government building, it gets shut down at a certain time. Right. And they literally had to drag him away. While I think the whole show ended up with, I think the woman who was doing press for it slightly misjudged the the general air of the show and brought along a load of kids who sat on the front row. And as he as he turned up, he came walking down the stairs, and you could see his, his face. He just dropped to his knees when he saw all these children on the front row because this was not a kids' show. <laughs> But the whole thing ended up, and that's the genius of him. Is, you know, it could be so run. The whole thing ended up with this potter's wheel with clay everywhere. There was a woman, the press woman, I think, with he had his handprints in clay all over her black dress. He was on the floor, covered in Guinness and clay, sort of lying down, and these two little girls were singing "Away in a Manger." <laughs> it was just the most beautiful scene you ever see. Yeah, so, yeah, you got to do things like that. Yeah. But, yeah, so all this time I was, I was, again, just doing the Sergeant Rock stuff. And, but I'd DJ regularly. We started a club night called Ricochet in, like, 97, Where 96. Was that? that was, it started off at a place called uh, Club Nine in Kensington. Right. And it was just, it was, I was surprised how popular it was. It just became, it was packed every, every month. Yeah. We were in the first, I think it was the first uh, edition of uh, Sleaze magazine. Okay. It was called Sleaze Nation originally. Yeah. And they just, I think, well, the guys I did it with both worked at Virgin Records. One was in press and one was in marketing, I think. So they kind of had a few ins. Yeah. To, you know, and then you suddenly realise that's how you do it. (laughs) Well, you just have to know the right people. Yes. And so we started doing this club night, and that lasted for a few years and went really well. And yeah, helped things bob along, and you know, kept my my own ear to the ground about what was happening. And I think it was we were starting it as a slightly Sunday social type thing, okay. so a very eclectic mix. But then it kind of became a sort of big beat night early on. Yeah. But then that we'd have guests, usually from guests from other clubs. So it'd be Ricochet versus like Vent. There was one in Brixton and uh, Rugged Vinyl with Label and uh, yeah, there was a few kind of uh, you know a couple of drum bass nights that would come in and partner with us for it. And after a while, but then after a while, there was that whole thing with Big Beat slightly morphed into New School Breakbeat, and then everything just became a little bit slightly mathematical. You just had to. Things had to sound a certain way. Everything became very narrow. Yeah. And you were like, unless something goes, <laughs> then people were like, oh, I don't like it. So we sort of left that for a while. The whole eclectic thing disappeared because these things always come in waves. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? For a period, it just became quite sort of sparse, didn't it? Just yeah. The musical landscape. Yeah, exactly. It just yeah, the, the sort of turn of the century all slightly disappeared off. Then I moved down to Brighton. What was the catalyst for It was just, I was living in Tooting, and I loved Tooting, it was great. And 
but I didn't have necessarily, apart from my work at the V&A, I didn't have anywhere I had to be. And a friend of mine had moved down here, and the girl I was seeing at the time was moving to Madrid to do a TEFL course. And it was the start of summer, and we went down to visit this friend of mine in Brighton. She was in a little one-bedroom place, and she was saying she wanted to move to somewhere a bit bigger. And just did that thing of thinking, oh, Brighton's lovely. Yeah. And so I thought, I'll move down there for the summer, and then move back to London after the, the summer's over. Yeah. And that was 15 years ago now. Right. So... Yeah, I just yeah, I was down here for it. When I, I first pulled up um, in the van, you know, you know, the van, I just got a knock on the window, and it was a guy I used to know from college who just said, "We're in the pub over the road. Once you once you loaded in, come over." Nice. I thought, well, that's a good start. Yeah. And yeah, it took a couple of weeks to think. Why? There's no need for me to go back to London, and it's terribly nice down here. Mm. So I just decided to stay, and I've been here ever since. So then, what what were you doing? Still with the sort of making bits and pieces. Yeah, then it was, yeah, then it was, it was, I wasn't doing much. Actually, and then I moved down to Brighton and actually started after I moved down here. I was doing some little comics when I was, um, when I was in London because I didn't have much to do. So I started, and I was always into art, so I started doing these little comics. Yeah. And, and they were mainly just about based on me and you know my friends I would often just record conversations that we'd had and then transcribe them and turn them into a comic right. but as one you know me and a friend used to sit in the pub and I'd record those conversations and but I turned us into Frederick Nietzsche and uh, and uh, Emmanuel Kant so it'd be like Manny and Fred and they'd be like this little cartoon Manny and Fred and it was just them talking about just absolute just sort of rubbish anybody you know talks with their friends in the pub about yes. You know, you, you, if you're, you know, the only place you have to wave at people is if you're on passing boats. Yeah, you know, that's the time when you know you have to wave at people. That's the time, only time people wave at each other, wave at strangers, <laughs> is on boats. Yeah. You know, completely and utterly pointless things like that. I did send uh, some of them to the editor of the Idler magazine, right. and I got a very polite but just totally damning email back. Just saying, I understand what you're doing here, but if you're, you're trying to do that sort of Seinfeld thing, the sort of show about nothing, but we need to... One, I don't think you've got characters that anyone has any empathy with. Two, I don't think the drawings are very good. Three, I don't think your lettering is very good. It was just like, I understand what you're doing, and I appreciate it, but it's all crap. So I thought, like, OK, fine. But I still did a few myself. But then I moved down to Brighton. I used to know... Just through doing music and touring around, you just get to know the, the people. Yeah. I knew the girl who used to edit the This Is Brighton magazine. Right. And I was talking to her and telling her about the comics, and she said, oh, why don't you illustrate the cover for the next the next edition? So I did a little illustration, got paid a little bit of money for it. And then for a couple of years, I sort of became fell into becoming an illustrator. Right. So for a little while, I was an illustrator while doing bits of music on the side. Yeah. And so I, yeah, did a few of the covers there. And I ended up doing one that when they were doing up Embassy Court on the yeah, seafront, yeah, yeah, yeah. they had a huge scaffolding, you know, out the front of it, and a tarpaulin up, up on top of that. And they, the whole of that was covered in like one of my "This Is Brighton" covers. No way! Just this huge illustration, you know, just my little signature at the bottom was about two people tall. So that was quite nice. But then that was a time when I sort of took up the ukulele. And then that was another little point when everything changed again. 
Okay, so when tell was... me, tell me, tell me what that change was. It was well, I was looking for a present for my godson for his birthday, and my godson has now, funnily enough, moved down to Brighton and is at BIM. And he's studying drums at BIM. And it's actually him that really, round in a roundabout way, got me into playing the ukulele. So I just it was a time when you didn't really see many ukuleles around. Now they're kind of you know, they're everywhere, the ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah it's become an instrument. Yeah, yeah. And the ukulele zeitgeist is definitely <laughs> you know, in a way had its day, but it's a real hardcore still of lots and lots of ukulele people. And then you know, obviously taught in schools now. Yeah. Um, but you didn't see many of them then. I saw one in a in a music shop window for about 15 quid and I thought well he couldn't just have that and he could smash it up and do what he likes and then I went in there and the guy tuned it up and played a few chords and I straight away just thought well I'm having that that's brilliant and it was a slightly light bulb moment that all the instruments I'd learned before because I played quite a few instruments but not very well and I'd always just decided to learn my own thing I suppose it was part of like doing everything on my own I never had music lessons yeah I never really bothered to really learn. I learned the basics of chords, but most of the time on guitar, I keep. I was just going, "That sounds nice." I've no idea what chord it is, yeah. but it sounds good. It would have been a chord, whatever you know, it may have been, but I had no idea what it was. Yeah. Whereas with the ukulele, it was the first time I'd ever thought, "Oh, you know what? I'm going to do. I'm going to learn loads of tunes that I love, and I'll, it'll be my own little jukebox." And then suddenly you realise that that's actually a really, really good way of learning to play an instrument, yeah. is playing other people's stuff. Then you can play your own. Whereas previously I'd just gone, nope, I'm doing my own stuff, that's it. Yeah. And then suddenly I was, yeah, learning all these, like, you know, ELO songs. or It was always things that I never wanted to learn, which is part of what's, you know, what has eventually happened. I didn't ever want to learn the standard things that people would play on a ukulele, like, you know, Sloop John B or something like that I wanted yeah. to learn you know old rave tunes or things like that or hip hop tunes or disco things or anything that wasn't really supposed to be played on ukulele and then with a couple of friends with my friend who'd originally tapped on the window when I moved down we started a little band called Rock Onic and Bob and it was just me on the banjolele and singing and a drummer and a bass player and then we just played all these sort of you know these silly cover versions so we do we did Mr. Blue Sky by ELO. We did uh, Keep On Moving by Five. We did some of the rave medley that I do now. We did The Model. A few of the Mr. B covers were from Rock Onic and Bob. Right, okay. And so we started playing around Brighton and then, you know, played some things in London and just, yeah, started kind of making a bit of a name of ourselves, for ourselves. And, that, and we ended up playing at Norman Cook's 42nd birthday party. It is his place down on the seafront. Right. And it was, that was brilliant. How did that fun. come about? Um, I think someone maybe, I'm not exactly sure. I think he may have heard of us. I don't know, actually, I think Toby the drummer had sent him a CD, maybe something like that. Yeah. And I think his PA got in touch with us. We must have put an email on there or something and got in touch with us and said, do you want to come and play at Norman's birthday party? And we're like, yes, we do. Absolutely. Yes, we do. Luckily, it was a beautiful sunny evening. We played out on the terrace, and yeah, it ended up yeah, ended up having a bit of a. I think he had a ukulele, or I may have taken a spare along. I th- actually, I think I gave them a, a uke as a present right. for his birthday. Smooth. So we ended, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up having had a, a bit of a jam on the 
Terrace later on and things like that. Yeah, it was just, yeah, really good fun. And he was playing me loads of old sort of weird bluegrass stuff and also some old Robert Crumb uh, stuff. When it, you know, Robert Crumb always did this sort of old bluegrass music. Right. And one of which I ended up, after Rock Like and Bob finished, I ended up sampling one of the Robert Crumb ones for the first ever Mr. B track. So there's all these nice little, you know, roundabout, you know, this circular thing that keeps coming around. Yeah. So, so that finished. Why did that finish? Um, that finished, uh, basically, I think uh, our drummer moved to Amsterdam. And I think our bass player moved. I think they just moved. And it was, I tried to get keep it together with a couple of different people. But, you know, when you've got a, a core of a band that are kind of, has happened quite organically because you're friends yeah. and they happen to play instruments and he had a little you know he was Toby was a gra- he's a graphic designer and he was in one of the studios in Beaconsfield Villas and we'd just go there every week there and just sort of practice he'd set his drums up and we'd just have yeah. a little practice so it was a, well, you know then we'd go down the pub it was a sort of social thing really yeah yeah so when you try and keep that going with people that aren't around and about it's I played at a, at a friend's wedding with some different people, but they were in another band as well. Suddenly it just becomes not as easy to get everything together. Yeah. So that's when I just sort of thought, okay, I'll try and do something on my own. 